Well, some years ago, Angela and I had the chance to visit Las Vegas, and while we were there, we were approached by one of those uh, slimy timeshare salesmen on the street who offered us free show tickets and food vouchers in exchange for what he said was 90 minutes of our time. Being ever in search of a great deal, I was quick to jump on it, and Angela went along for the ride. Uh, we were taken to their office, and we got all checked in. We watched the glamorous sales video and then met with high-pressure salesperson number one. She was probably too nice to be in her line of work, but she gave it a good try. After a while, as our 90-minute commitment was coming to an end, I told her that there was just no way that I was going to buy a timeshare, and I made it quite clear in no uncertain terms that I was only there for the free stuff. I have very little tolerance for sales pitches, and so Angela, the sweet people pleaser in our relationship, is already slumped down in her chair, slightly embarrassed by her husband. After some delay tactics, the sales lady uh, said she would start the checkout process so that we could get our free stuff. But really what she did is go call in the big guns for backup. So the manager walks over and sits down, talking to me like we're long-lost pals. He, he's arrogant, and I have no, no doubt that he's managed to finish some deals in his day. Now, Angela might not agree with this, but I think I was pretty nice to the lady. But I wasn't having what this guy was offering. So, again, I, I said that I'm not buying, and I asked for our free stuff so we could leave. Uh, that's when he brought out his signature move. He asked about our family and said that if I really loved my family, I would make the investment of quality time, but in a snarky way said something like, that is if you love your family. That's the moment when I think Angela was ready to run and hide. I asked him if insulting people's parenting or love of family was really an ethical and effective way of selling a stupid timeshare, and then made it clear that we were done and that it was time for the free stuff. If I remember right, he threw down his pen on the table and stomped off, muttering something under his breath. Maybe you have a story like that, or a story of maybe when you gave in to the sales pitch, some sort of story that involves bait and switch. It's sold as an easy, low-pressure opportunity with benefits too good to pass up, just 90 minutes of your time, and it ends up that that's not quite what the person had promised. There's much more to it, much more required of you, much higher pressure than what you first signed up for. That's exactly the case when it comes to the Christian faith and many people's experience. They were sold a, a message that grace is free, that you're saved by grace alone, but then found themselves weighed down with junk fees and limitations and asterisks and blackout dates and hoops that they needed to jump through. They were told that to be a Christian simply means to trust Christ as their Savior, but then after they signed on the line, the other shoe dropped. Not only must you believe, but now you must perform. They're baited with the grace of Christ. And once they're in the door, they're pummeled with requirement and demand and uniformity and checklists of the law. Maybe you've experienced that. You hear people talk about 
how wonderful the grace of Jesus is. But then you come to find out that they are some of the least gracious, not to mention least likable people that you know. Of course, nobody at Living Word is like that. I'm talking about the other churches in town. This bait-and-switch version of Christianity, it's nothing new. Sometimes you'll hear it expressed by people emphasizing the need. They just keep hammering on this point that they're making that people need uh, for Jesus to be both Savior and Lord. I hear it expressed that way often. They'll uh, bemoan the fact that so many people turn to Jesus as Savior but don't reach a satisfactory level of sacrifice or morality or hoop jumping for Jesus. And of course, there's always an implied understanding that they have fully surrendered to Jesus, which sets them apart from the others whose salvation they are questioning. But it's all a perversion. It's all a twisting of the gospel. Because anyone who truly understands grace, anyone who has gone from being dead in their sin to alive in Christ, anyone who has the slightest notion of exactly how sinful they are apart from Jesus, knows that you can't oversell the gospel. You can't exaggerate God's grace. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and Jesus, by absolutely no merit of our own, saved us and made us something entirely new. We were cold, dead, condemned, And in Christ, we are more alive than we have ever been. Those who remember and who recognize and who understand the grace that has been lavished on them have no time, no room, no sense of humor when it comes to people who would try and heap law and performance and checklists and hoops to jump through upon those who have been brought to new life in Christ. Those voices clamoring for people to perform. Those who try to convince others to graduate from a life lived by grace to a life dominated by rules simply must not grasp what Jesus has done for them. That's the only explanation. Those offering a bait-and-switch Jesus often sound theological. They sound spiritual, principled, even mature. But on the inside, they're grasping at straws spiritually, pointing out the failures of others so that they feel better about their own inner spiritual turmoil. I know I've talked to them. This is exactly what's happening in Galatia in our text today. Paul was being accused of overselling the gospel, of making too big of a deal out of God's grace, of preaching cheap grace, grace that would be taken advantage of. The opponents uh, were saying that it can't be that simple. You have to do your part. You must keep your end of the bargain. That's the context of our letter. Spiritually blind people masquerading as teachers, thinking that they are experts, but not even understanding the gospel. Missing it entirely. Blind to true grace. Now, perhaps I've already stepped on some toes this morning, and that's okay. That's what you called me here to do. Some might be saying, yeah, but what about this? And I would 
simply say that if you follow up grace with, yeah, but, you need to consider whether you understand grace. There are no, yeah, buts when it comes to the grace that Jesus offers. One author once said, uh, quote, grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. There are no yeah buts with grace. No taking the edge off, no softening it. And if you do, if you add something to the gospel, if you add a yeah but after grace, it's no longer grace. It's no longer good news. It steals and denies what Jesus has done. That's just the intro to the sermon, by the way. We pick up in chapter 2 of Paul's spirited and passionate letter defending his ministry, and even more importantly, defending the precision and the simplicity of the gospel. We're going to hear about his visit to Jerusalem. And we're going to hear a story of unity that comes through the gospel in Jerusalem as he meets with the apostles there. From Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. As then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem... Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John those esteemed pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Uh, God, may we trust in you and not in ourselves. Lead us to repentance and faith And above all, may you be glorified as the gospel is proclaimed through the words of this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this portion of the letter, Paul recounts his trip to Jerusalem. He's quick to point out in verse 1 that he had been preaching the gospel and planting churches for 14 years before he makes this trip. And that the trip was prompted by a revelation, by the Holy Spirit. And so he travels to Jerusalem and he takes with him Barnabas and Titus. It's really important to remember sort of the overarching context of why Paul is giving us this information and why he's writing this letter in the first place. His main point 
in this section, in the first couple chapters of the letter, is to emphasize that the message that he preaches, the gospel that he preaches, was straight from Jesus. That it's not the result of anyone else, including the other apostles. This too-good-to-be-true gospel message that you can add nothing to is straight from the Savior himself, and therefore, Paul will emphasize the only true gospel. But as Paul makes the point, he also teaches these Galatian churches, and ultimately us as well, some valuable insights and understanding about this gospel message. And so as we consider Paul's words in this passage, I will organize it around three themes that I think are most helpful for us today. Gospel unity, gospel freedom, and gospel fruit. The first one is this, gospel unity. While this is a theme found in our entire text for today, we see it maybe most clearly in verse 9 of our text. Verse 9 says this, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. At the conclusion of their discussion, the three pillars of the faith in Jerusalem shake hands with Paul, signifying that they are living in unity and fellowship with one another, that they are in agreement with how he is preaching the gospel. But there's an important aspect to this that we need to unpack a little, and it revolves around the other person who's there with them that Paul mentions, and that's Titus. Titus was a Greek, a Gentile convert who came to trust in Christ. In other words, he wasn't like some of these other people raised as a Jew and trusting in Christ. Titus was a Gentile. He was a missionary. He was a co-worker with Paul. Eventually, he would be appointed as, as bishop of the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. Paul left him there to provide leadership and to appoint and train elders and pastors in the churches there. But Paul makes it clear in verse 3 that Titus, who accompanied him on this trip, was never compelled to be circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, with Israel. And all believing Jews uh, who were male were required to be circumcised when they came to faith. And then if they had sons, those sons were to be circumcised at eight days of age in order to be included in the nation of Israel, in order to be a part of the family of God. These were the requirements. The shedding of blood was necessary to be included as part of the people of God. And so circumcision ultimately points us forward to Jesus, whose blood would be shed, that all might have the opportunity to be made right with God, to be called his children, his people. And so Paul sort of uses Titus in our text as a case study. This uncircumcised Gentile who went to Jerusalem was welcomed by the apostles there. Remember, Paul's confronting the, the false teachers in Galatia who are trying to teach that the law and circumcision specifically are necessary for salvation. All of the regulations that the Jews adhered to, these false teachers were saying, once, once you trust in Christ, once you come to faith in Jesus, you now must fulfill the law. They're saying, uh, yep, it's nice that you believe in Jesus, now do these things to prove it. It's not really, the issue is not really circumcision itself, 
It's about a proper understanding of what Jesus had done and accomplished on our behalf in relation to the law. The false teachers were teaching Jesus plus. And Paul's point in including this in in the letter to the Galatian churches is to illustrate that there there is unity, there is cohesiveness in belief among the apostles rejecting those requirements, that they're all preaching the same gospel, whether in Europe, in in Asia Minor, or in Palestine. They were were all preaching the same gospel. Now next week we'll hear about another meeting between Paul and Peter. At that time, the meeting took place in Antioch, uh, when Peter was maybe compromising his position. He was swayed by uh, people of influence, and Paul confronted him. Paul rebuked him on it. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Uh, But for the purposes of our passage today, there is agreement among the apostles that the law, the Old Testament regulations, and and specifically circumcision, are not required for the Christian. That we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's important to point out that this unity that we see was not uniformity. It, It was what we might call unity in diversity. Paul and Peter were very different characters. Paul had been an academic in his former life. Peter had been a fisherman. Not only that, but they had very different callings. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. They had different backgrounds, different callings, but were unified around the gospel message. There's an old quote that maybe some of you have heard. It's used quite often. It's been attributed to St. Augustine, but probably wasn't actually from him. There's really no evidence of that. The first time it shows up, it's used by a Reformation-era German Lutheran theologian named Meldinius. But it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In other words, focus on unity in areas that are essential, freedom in areas that are non-essential, and love and charity in everything that we do. I think perhaps Christians today would do well to reflect on this quote, especially when it comes to how we engage in our modern culture and political systems, uh, where it seems that the mantra of today is in all things uniformity with no mention of charity at all. Here's the thing. The gospel sets me free from having to be right about everything. In Christ, I have everything I need. I have been forgiven of sin, declared righteous before God, given a new and true identity in Christ. And the same is true for everyone who believes. And so I don't need to be right about everything. I'm free to to love my neighbor without having to be better than them. Now, gospel unity doesn't mean that you're best friends with everybody, right? It it simply means choosing to live in unity with one another first because of the gospel and then for the sake of the gospel. This this is one of the things that's been such a blessing for me since I've been here at Living Word. There is diversity of thought and experience and background uh, in, in this room and in our church family. But there is unity because of the central message that unites us, because of the gospel. And I think part of that, just like Paul and Peter, has to do with 
not only unity in, in message or unity in the gospel, but unity in mission. The early church, the congregations that Paul was planting around the known world were eclectic. They were diverse. They were multicultural. There was great diversity and also great unity because of a shared message and a shared mission. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus were unified with the apostles in Jerusalem, not because they had the same exact calling, but because they were part of the same mission. Their audience was quite different. Their tactics likely would have been very different. But they were all part of the very same mission to make disciples of all nations. This can be hard for us as Americans because nationalism is such an important part of our identity. But, but the reality is that if you are in Christ, and this is hard for us to, to wrestle with, if you are in Christ, you have more in common with your brother or sister in Christ in, say, sub-Saharan Africa than you do with the person who lives on your block who looks like you and talks like you and votes like you but rejects the Savior. You have infinitely more in common. But when you are in Christ, your identity is fundamentally changed. You are now a sojourner here, an exile here, called and commissioned to be a part of the mission of God. And and with that, your allegiances change. Your identity is to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God, a proclaimer of his good news in the location and in the vocation where he has placed you. And it is that shared mission, that shared uh, ministry that brings unity, even in diversity. And this unity must be defended. There are many opposed to the true gospel who will demand uniformity. And usually this shows up in, in today's context, it shows up by drawing ideological lines. You must think in every respect like me, or your insert whatever slur of the week is used by politicians and, and TV talking heads. When people in your tribe or the cultural voices that you allow to disciple you uh, say that somebody is the enemy, you would do well to remember that when we are in Christ, our approach to evaluating others is entirely different from the prevailing approaches today. We don't buy into ideological uniformity that's demanded of us today because our identity is sourced in an entirely different place than that of those fighting for the kingdom of this world around us. We are people marked by unity. When we believe and when we understand the gospel, we will work for and even fight for Unity. We will defend unity around the gospel. We will work hard to preserve unity in our churches with the true gospel at the center. And when we feel resentment, when we feel disunity creep up in our hearts, we will recognize that it is from the deceiver, the evil one. And we will confess it as sin. And we will make things right. That's gospel unity. That is the, the fruit of what happens when we are united together around the gospel. The, the second theme that I want to mention uh, briefly this morning is that of gospel freedom. We see this mentioned clearly in verse 4. It says this, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks 
to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Paul's main argument here is that the gospel brings freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from fear of condemnation. True spiritual freedom says that I can do nothing to improve upon what Christ has done for me. I'm going to beat that drum all throughout this sermon series, that we can do nothing to improve upon what Christ has done for us. I could never earn it. It can only be received. The the gospel brings freedom from the hamster wheel of spirituality that's so prevalent in Christian circles today. Constantly running, constantly working, constantly trying to please God, trying to live up to the expectations of others, but never being quite good enough. The true gospel that Paul preached did away with that system completely. It said simply that what Jesus accomplished, his perfect life, his blood shed for you, his death in your place, his resurrection, conquering death and hell, that was all that is needed. You can't do better. You cannot improve upon it. You can't add to what Jesus has done. And anything that we try to add actually corrupts and steals from it. If you have faith in Christ today, God will never see you as more holy, more perfect, more righteous than he does today. That's the gospel. No amount of cleaning up, no amount of self-improvement will make you more acceptable, more pure, more righteous in the eyes of God because you can't improve upon what Jesus has done. It's only in Jesus that we could ever stand before God. And you can't improve, you can't get better than Jesus. And and, and understanding that, realizing that, believing that brings true freedom. Uh, Luther said it this way, he said that those who are twisting the gospel by adding to it are are handed a beautiful, precious pearl, but throw it away and instead choose to cling to their own shabby works. Think about that image. Handed this beautiful pearl and throw it away and and choose to cling on to their own shabby works. These false teachers had invaded the ranks, and Paul says that they they were spying on the freedom of those who believe the true gospel. But their true agenda was to enslave them, to steal their freedom, to make them slaves once again. I want you to imagine this morning that you, uh, you go home uh, after church today and there is uh, sitting in your driveway the beautiful brand new pickup that you've been eyeing every time you drive by the dealership. There's a bow on the front, there's a, car, a card on the, on the driver's side window with your name on it. Uh, and, and the card just simply says, this is a gift, and no, you can't pay for it. Now, naturally, you're going to jump in and take it for a drive, right? You still can't believe what you've been given, but when you get home, you, you park it in the driveway, and you walk around just admiring this gift. But then your crabby neighbor walks out, and he says, so, so how'd you get that? You know, people don't just give those things away. There must be a catch. Just wait for the other shoe to drop. And they're right. In this world, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Nobody would give a gift like that, completely free, completely unearned. It goes against everything we believe. 
And so you sit in your living room that evening and you're, you're, you're thinking this over, trying to figure out what you should do. You know you don't deserve it. It can't be free. So you have to do something, but, but you don't know who it came from, so you can't give it back. So, of course, the next most logical thing to do is to try to make it just like your old pickup. So you go to the garage, you get a, a hammer, and you put dents every place on the new pickup where you had dents on the old pickup. You drive to Ace Hardware, you get a couple cans of spray paint, and you, you paint it to match the old pickup. You put some chips in the window, some dents on the bumper. You even go to the tire shop and you ask them to, to swap these new tires for the old tires from your old pickup. First thing tomorrow morning, you call your mechanic. You ask him if he can swap out this new engine for that old one. Of course, that's ridiculous, right? You'd never do that. That's exactly what these false teachers are doing to these young Christians in Galatia. These believers have been given an incredible gift in the gospel. And these false teachers are trying to make this beautiful, free gift exactly like the old thing that it replaced. And in doing so, they're actually enslaving people. They've been set free, given new life, new purpose, new identity, and it's being stolen, throwing away the pearl and grabbing onto, clinging to shabby old works. There are many modern examples of this type of enslavement. Most simply stated, it's any teaching or emphasis that would place the assurance of one's being a Christian and staying a Christian in what they can do rather than in what Christ has done. I want to say that again. It's any teaching or emphasis that would place the assurance of one's being a Christian or staying a Christian in what they can do rather than in what Christ has done. You have been made right with God and you stay right with God by his grace through faith alone. And anything that encroaches on that is a perversion of the gospel. And not only does it ruin the gospel, but it ruins the person. It enslaves them to something that isn't Jesus. And when you realize, what you'll probably come to see is that, that slaves hate it when other people are free. Slaves can't stand the thought of someone else being free. They desperately want everyone else to be enslaved like them. And that's what we see in these churches. Paul's going to come back again to this theme of freedom and slavery later in the letter. So he speaks of gospel unity, gospel freedom, and then finally he closes with this idea of gospel fruit. We're going to revisit this idea more completely in Galatians chapter 5. If you've read Galatians chapter 5, you know that Paul gives us a list of fruit. Fruit of the Spirit that the gospel produces within those who believe. But, but we have here in verse 10... A really interesting statement. You may have noticed that the ending of our passage was, was a little abrupt and seemed like it was coming from out of, out of nowhere. Uh, it says this, verse 10, All that they ask, so these pillars in Jerusalem, when they see, meet with Paul and his friends, all that they asked is that we continue to remember the poor. The very thing, Paul says, I had been eager to do all along. 
So they have this meeting in Jerusalem. There's unity around their understanding of the gospel, the freedom that it brings, the mission to which they are called. And then the scriptures record for us this one curious detail that is of the utmost importance to those apostles in Jerusalem. And what was it? That the apostles and missionaries to the Gentiles would continue to remember the poor. These church leaders would have known firsthand the impact of poverty. We see a number of references in both Acts and in Paul's epistles to his work of raising money to help believers in Jerusalem. The early years of the church, famine and overtaxing and persecution led those believers in and around Jerusalem to be forced to live in great poverty, to experience hardship. But there's no reason to assume that this is uh, this particular hardship was the only thing that they had in mind. They were most certainly concerned uh, about not throwing the practice uh, of giving to the poor uh, out with the rest of the law that Christians were no longer obligated to follow. Here's what I mean. Uh, throughout both the Old and New Testaments, there are dozens and dozens of reminders to provide for the poor among you. Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 15... For God's people to be open-handed when it comes to the poor. In Leviticus, we find the practice, it was common in those days, commanded actually of not harvesting the edges of the field. Leaving the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor could come and glean some when they needed food. In Deuteronomy 25, the people are instructed to leave olives on the olive trees and leave grapes on the vines. So that, quote, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow can eat. And this continued into the New Testament as well. Jesus just assumed that his followers were living this way. In Matthew 6, he says, when you give to the needy, not if you do, not you should give to the needy, but he just says, when you give to the, to the needy, just assuming that this is the way that God's people live. And we have the early Christians that we see in, the, in Acts, the early Christians selling their possessions placing that money in the community treasury for the well-being of their neighbors, of the poor among them. So suffice it to say, this was the common practice of God's people from the very beginning. And the concern for the apostles in Jerusalem is that these Gentile Christians are, are taught that giving to the poor, that helping those in need is not a command of the law but that it's a fruit that the gospel produces. In their gospel freedom, Peter and his colleagues uh, want to make sure that these new Christians throughout the known world realize that giving generously to others is not the law, it's what the gospel does within us. This is expressed so eloquently in 1 John chapter 3. It says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, these uh, apostles in Jerusalem are saying giving to the poor is not like circumcision. 
It's not like the other requirements of the law. It's not something that's added to the gospel, twisting it into a gospel of performance. No, giving to those in need is something that naturally flows out of those who really believe the gospel. In fact, John says, if you have and you see somebody in need and you don't have pity, you're not moved to compassion, the love of God might not actually be in you. This isn't a condition. This isn't a checklist. This isn't adding to the gospel. These apostles are concerned that that we today would recognize that this is just what the gospel does within us. And so just like when we get to the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5, these are words that do drive us to the cross. Leave us asking God to produce that sort of good fruit in our lives, to make us that sort of person. The gospel reminds us that All that we have is a gift from the Lord. That we are nothing special in and of ourselves. In fact, quite the opposite. The gospel levels the playing field. Arrogance and self-superiority are incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because to receive the gospel is to believe that the only good thing in me ultimately is Christ. But friends, we have been given a beautiful, precious pearl. And to add anything to it, or to attract people with this pearl, and then in bait-and-switch fashion to spring on them all of the terms and conditions after they grasp it, is to cast it aside and to cling to our shabby old works. The gospel must be protected and defended and Preserved because anything else brings slavery instead of true freedom. But if Christ really did it all, if Jesus really did accomplish everything necessary for life and for salvation, then our mindset switches from have to to get to. You might get tired of that phrase in Galatians, but it's a central theme in the letter. It's a single, perhaps the single greatest gift that I can give you to help you see that Jesus has done everything, that he doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need your morality and your behavior, that when we believe all that he's done for us, we don't have to, we get to. So rest in what Christ has done, knowing that you can't add to it or improve upon it. And watch him change your heart. From have to, to get to. And watch him grow within you true gospel unity and freedom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this precious pearl that you have given to us for the gospel, for the announcement, the proclamation that your son Jesus Christ died for our sins as credited to all who believe his righteousness as gift. Lord, give us faith to believe. May we experience that unity, that freedom, and that fruit that only you are capable of producing in our lives. May you work within us all that is pleasing to you. And may you be glorified above all, now and forever, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.